Hello and welcome. I'm Natasha Short and you're listening to the Kimberley Jigas Shiro Series podcast where we will be sharing the stories of local Kimberley Indigenous women. Kimberley Jigas seeks to amplify Indigenous women's voices and promote Australian Indigenous culture and women through storytelling. Through podcasts, we seek to share the experiences and wisdom of our most inspirational Indigenous women and learn more about the cultural ways and history of the people of the Kimberley region, Western Australia. These are the personal stories of their journey presented to you through our Kimberley Jigas Shiro series. Please make contact if you would like more information. The Shiro series is a play on words. So we have heroes in our community and we also have Shiro's in our community. So this morning we've got one of our Kimberley Shiro's, it's Dr. Stephanie Truss. Good morning, Steph. How are you? Good morning, Tash. I'm well. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks for joining me today. Steph, let's start at the very beginning. Let's talk a little bit about yourself and your country and your family and where you come from. So I am a Gidja woman. My mum was a Gidja woman. My dad is a Walmajari man. Um, and so I was born in Wyndham and raised in Wyndham. But of course have lots and lots of family right throughout the East Kimberley. Well, the Kimberley really and Wide, wider than that actually but mostly my family here and so we you know was born and raised in Wyndham went to school in Wyndham and then like lots of people did had to move to go and do some high school elsewhere in the 80s yep um and um so that's that's sort of my history and my story mm, interesting so let's talk a little bit about some of your stories of your childhood and what you remember very vividly from growing up um, I think some of the most important things, um, well, I guess the things that come to mind when you're growing up is those childhood memories um, really about family and about having lots of family and cousins and, um, you know, extended family around you all the time and, and that whole thing about really um, lots of outdoor play, lots of fishing, lots of hunting um, and being outdoors most of the time. And so that, um, and I love school, um, you know, my parents were really, really big on making sure we got an education that was really important to them. So school and, you know, love school, hanging out, mainly you're hanging out with all your same mob, you're hanging out at home, you went to school and hung out with your same cousins and family and friends at school. Well, there was enough people around that you it, couldn't be lonely. No, that's right. You're never lonely. That's true. And so... You know, really happy childhood memories. Um, I mean, that changes, of course, as you get a bit older. Still happy memories, but of course, as, as everyone gets older, you go through things in your life that change who you are and influence who you are, and you get to understand things a little bit more as you get to be a teenager and a little bit older. Yeah. Um, so you're the second youngest of nine children. That's a big family, Steph. Yeah. yeah. You're almost the baby. Almost the baby. Probably your older siblings probably thought you were a little bit spoiled. You and Carrie Ann. Yeah, they definitely think think we're spoiled. They tell us that all the time. Um, so we definitely didn't sort of get as much discipline. Got got away with a lot more because well, we were younger. Out, okay. Yeah, yeah. I reckon I did. Sometimes it's a hard thing trying to convince them, but no, nah, no. Nah. We're a close family. I think you've done all right. So looking back to your childhood, Steph, and, and we've spoken before about places like Blueberry Hill you know, in Halls Creek? Yeah, actually, that's another real vivid memory of my childhood, which is probably um, a sad 
part of my childhood. Although when you're 10, 11, you don't quite um, view that as adults do. And so when I was 10, so my brother Timothy was killed in a in a car accident um, with four other boys. And, and that just in a small town like Wyndham at the time, that was devastating to the whole town. And even as a 10-year-old, I remember the funeral because we had the funeral at the um, at the school. Yeah. And um, it would have affected the whole town. It did. It did. And it still does today. You know, mm. there's lots of um, reflecting back, even though it's over 30 years ago now, that um, that happened, that that had a major effect, like it would in any town. If you lost um, five, five young, young men. men in the prime of their life um, with all their, you know, all the promise of their life, that their life was going to give them going forward and what they would have done yeah. in their community. So it, it was really quite traumatic and really quite traumatic for my family. Yeah. And it did mean that my mum and my younger sister went to live with my older siblings in Adelaide for a period of time. And I went to live with my dad and my older brother Barry and his wife Amy in in Halls Creek. So, um, and they lived in a tent on Blueberry Hill. Yeah, not a blueberry in sight, yeah. but I think it was named after you know that old country music song. The There's artist. an old um, found oh, my that, thrill on Blueberry is it Hill. Fats Domino? <laughs> is, oh. is it Fats Domino or is it somebody else? I'm not sure actually. Yeah, Look I do at, recall the song. Yeah, how, how they got that name, I don't know, but yeah, that was the name of this place, and it was well, literally a tent that they lived in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's what we called it. You know, we called it Blueberry Hill. No doubt we got yes. a proper name for it. Yes. But I guess, um, and that was my childhood memory of the name for it. And, yeah, they lived in a tent. Um, you know, housing was an issue, still is an issue yes. up here. And um, so I stayed in the tent. And so I've got quite vivid memories of my time there, um, living there with um, uh, my brother and my, well, my dad, my my brother and sister-in-law and my sister-in-law's family, so Amy's family, yeah. and, you know, getting to know her family which, and her parents. They were beautiful, beautiful people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So the the death of your brother uh, would have affected so many of your, your family members. What? How did it affect your mother? Do you think she ever recovered? Um, I don't think you ever do as a mum. I mean, I'm a mother now, so I and you know I think if you lose a child, um, and of course I'm a doctor now, so I see lots of people who have lost um, children. Yeah. And I think it's nothing you you recover from. I think it's one of those things that will always be with you forever. Um, and the way people potentially respond to that grief, of course, is different. But and and my mum was exactly the same. I think mum you know, had, you know, eight other children and so, um, and by then grandchildren were coming along as well. But um, I think that's something she, any time she spoke about it, it was with, always with great sadness. And I think, um, so that, I think that just reflects how it is for for all parents when you lose a child, yeah. Did your mum and dad cope with it in different ways? Um, Look, I was young at the time, so really it's about reflecting on that later and as an adult probably talking to my parents about it individually. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it is, it's different. People cope with grief differently and I think men and women potentially cope with it differently. Yeah. Um, so it, it was no doubt Dad, um, you know, had to still 
pay bills and pay rent so he still had to work and so in some ways you had to get on with he had to get on with being able to do that but he he always um always talked about losing tim with great sadness as well so yeah Yeah. mm. every life means something you think about your parents had nine kids but just the loss of one was still so traumatic yeah you think about some people they've got only one child Mm. so imagine losing the one Mm. yeah you know but um every every child is so important and i do actually recall that um attending in two years ago when they had um they commemorated that incident 30 years ago Mm. because so many people uh were a part and affected by that and and you know tragedy is not something it's not a new thing that we experience here in the Kimberleys. It's something that is happening all the time, unfortunately, with our yeah. people. But let's go back to Blueberry Hill and you growing up with Barry and Amy. And you were telling me previously about how Amy was almost, um, you know, an inspiration for you at that time because she was always very much interested in health. Yeah. And well, she, she was, was a health worker. She was. Yes, she was. So she, um, she was an Aboriginal health worker and that whole concept was totally foreign to me as a kid, as, as you, you wouldn't necessarily know that. So, um, you know, and she, she had a job. So we, she would go each day with, you know, with the community health team and was very much part of the team. And, um, you know, when I finished school, I'd come back and sometimes jump on with her um, which probably is totally illegal these days, but <laughs> yeah. um, I'd jump on with her and just, especially when she was doing the the old people's camps and go out and see all the oldies and um, check on them and um, make sure we're delivering medications and, you know, vitamins and things like that. And they had these really, um, really hard protein biscuits, Yes. which you almost had to suck on to eat because you couldn't bite them, otherwise you'd chip a tooth. <laughs> but for some reason I loved them, so every now and again I'd be you know, in the car um, sucking on a protein biscuit as I was... Um, but I remember as a child looking at that, thinking and watching Amy work and thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to be like, like Amy. I want to help old people and I want to... Yeah. And, and at that state, you know, at that time there was no electricity and no running water. And our oldies lived in humpies and tin shacks and um, or just bow sheds. Um, and so, you know, my brother Barry had a ute and so we'd try and get firewood so that they had firewood and then we'd try and cart water and collect water. And, you know, when I think about it now, you know, yep. we learn all about Maslow's hierarchy and needs around yep. food and shelter. Yes. Um, essentially what we were trying to do was support support especially the, some of the oldies that didn't have the means we had to try and help people to be able to, um, you know, have food, have fire, be able to cook food and be able to have clean water. Yes. And, um, yeah, I think that's where the fire in my belly started. Although, to be totally honest, mum, um, my mum who was born and is part of the Stolen Generation. My mum and dad were both part of that Stolen Generation. She she always had this interest in helping others and, and actually really had a really intricate understanding of the human body and helping fix people Yes. Um, in terms of helping with their health and um, even animals as well, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it was really, yeah, and so I think part of that's in your DNA, you know, and I think there's some of that that you, 
you unknowingly as a child you you know watch and hear and see and so you you absorb that as well so I, I have no doubt that some of that actually comes from my mum as well. Yeah. Well, you were mm. saying she was um, a very clever lady. Mm. And with the right opportunity, she would have been the first doctor probably. Yeah, she would have been. I always remember um, as a kid, mum had this little dog. His name was Benji. Mm-hmm. So he's a little sort of fluffy terrier type. And um, for some reason, both his um, back legs were dislocated when he was born. Okay. when he was quite little as a pup. And so there's a treatment we used to use for babies in terms of trying to get their hips located back in the same spot. Yes. So mum used the same technique on her dog. Wow, without even knowing about what you do now. Yeah. So I remember watching her and learning and asking her why she was making this, you know, little harness that was um, to help her little dog. And... and um, yeah, he walked. He had a little little limp with his walk, but pretty much walked and run wow. as normal. And uh, they moved out to Wagabad, our community. He went with them. So, wow. yeah. Wow. So I always remember Benji Trust. Wow. <laughs> so you, you, we were talking earlier in regards to your mum and dad, and we were talking about um, how faith, love and hope underpinned so much of what they did and how they lived their life and how they raised their children. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, we've lost mum and dad, both of them now. We lost mum this year, which was extremely hard in the middle of the, you know, when COVID was at its height because, um, you know, restrictions on who could attend funerals and things had happened by then. Yes. Um, so a lot of it's still really quite raw for me. But um, when I reflect back on both of them, you know, mum was taken maybe at the age of six, and dad potentially even a little bit younger, um, that they were taken to Mullabulla. And, um, you know, dad never got to meet his mother again. And, in fact, my grandmother died giving birth to him but um, because she was quite young. My dad's mum and my mum's mum, mum got to see her one more time before she then passed away and then she never got to see her again. So, essentially, mum and dad were raised... Without parents, but on a mission they the like only child of both of their parents. No, no. So your dad was one of how many? Well, I guess when you say it's difficult, isn't it? Because really, the reality is, I do not know half of my DNA. I do not know half of my, um, you know, I don't know my my mother's father, and I don't know my father's father. Not yep. really. Yeah. Um, and, you know, trust is a made-up name. Yep, it's a cool name for a doctor. But, um But it's a... Name it given. Is a, it's a name given. And, yes. and so it doesn't reflect who my father's parents yeah. are. Yes. Uh, and the same for my mum. So, um, so it's really, um, you know, when I think back on their, how their life began and... and the influences on their lives growing up and who they had to guide them and love them and show them faith, hope and love. Yeah. Um, they talked about good times at Mullabulla and mostly the good times are really about... Um, they had a, one teacher that they that mum talked about. Yeah. Um, his name was Mr Hovenden and she re- mum's in her later years reconnected with Mr Hovenden's daughter. Nice. But um, so he sounds like an amazing um, t- 
teacher who, who I think was a minister as well, who taught them, she felt taught them the things that they needed to do, to learn, because they'd only been to maybe grade five or six at the time. Yes. Um, and so, you know, should they look back on those times with love and often we heard the good stories. Every now and again we'd hear the bad stories but and the good stories were either related to to the teacher that they felt loved and cared about them yeah. but really about also the, the all their cousins and extended family that were taken away as well who became their family. So, you know, there's a whole lot of uncle and aunties that, yep, we, we are related to them but the closeness also came from the fact that they all have that same background they were all taken away yeah. put into Mullabulla and grew up together in Mullabulla which is really common when people you know this is a common story around Australia isn't it you know for yes. all our mobs so, so they, and grew, why, they yeah. grew up in institutions yeah. basically but the interesting thing that I see is that that process of our, our people growing up in institutions resulted then in when they went on to be parents themselves they were missing some of those parental skills but yet your parents seem to have a very strong understanding of what was really important and necessary and they were able to pass that on to you. Yeah, and I think that's what I reflect on is the fact that even though they've had that upbringing, um, I mean, they were amazing parents yeah. and they parented us. No doubt it was probably much stricter and harder with the older kids, with my older siblings, yes, because life was harder then. And Dad was away for extended periods of time because he had to go away to work. But, um, you know, none of us feel like they, you know, we loved our parents and we knew that they, even though we didn't have a lot and probably lived below the poverty line for sure, that in fact we never felt that as kids and as growing up because yeah. um, certainly, you know, certainly love, love us... Love overrode it. Yeah, yeah. And look... Um, you know, you talk to my older siblings and they certainly remember times when they really did it tough without food and things. But I think there was always the sense that um, they were protected and loved and um, there was always hope, you know, and mum and dad had strong faith. And so that, that I think, shone through um, through their parenting. And, I mean, you know, they that that's a gift um, that we carry with us today that... We, ho- I mean, I hope that I give to, um, you know, that we all pass on to our children. So, yeah. yeah. You talked about your mother having that eternal pot of stew, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, on the boil. Yeah. And having, having so many kids, they're almost eight in two rounds, you know. Mm. Mm. Um, but we also spoke about just the poverty, the, the prevalence of poverty within the Indigenous community. But yet, when we look back on it, even though it's so we're so surrounded by it. I guess many of us didn't feel that way at that time. No. no it's only as an adult when you look back on it and you think, oh, yeah, everyone else had X, Y, and Z. You know, others, other people had had certain things, but Aboriginal people seem to just be making it day by day, like a daily existence. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? And you, and, you know, I remember lots and lots of kids coming to our home, extended family and friends and even non-Aboriginal kids coming to our home to have supper and mum being quite generous with, with whatever we had. Yeah. And it's interesting, I was watching a documentary on a on one of those channels about this guy travelling through quite poor parts. I think it was Italy or somewhere in Europe. Yeah. Um, and he was talking about um, he was going to some of these villages where people were obviously poor, if you like, but 
they were the best meals and the best conversations and they were the best memorable times is this thing about generosity of spirit that people have definitely um that's really a state of mind and state of heart isn't it definitely mm. when i look back on how and i'm obviously younger than you um but in my household there was a perpetual you know an abundance of local uh, fruit and vegetables from the Kununurra area and mm. anybody could partake of that whoever mm. you know happened to be visiting us on that day or that week um would absolutely be enjoying the generosity of my parents who were very much that way mm. but it's community i think mm. it's a community and it's a sense of generosity that we see amongst our people mm. so and then there's still that love and that just this the enjoy the the enjoyment of simplicity of life i think it is Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. underpinned by faith. Yeah, absolutely. That, and that trust. Join us for part 2 of Natasha's chat with Dr. Stephanie Trust on the next episode. Stay connected with us by following Kimberly Jeegers on all social media platforms, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, and share the podcast with your family and friends. Thank you.